Welcome to Hillcrest Chapel Audio. We hope today's message will help you grow. Ray Deck III is with us. He is both the founder and director of Skookum House. If you live in Bellingham, you have heard of Skookum Kids uh, and all the work that they do. And it's been my great privilege to get to know him a little bit. But I'm astounded by your entrepreneurial spirit, how you saw a problem and you and a team begin to address it. You're a model for us on the very thing that we want to do. So would you join me in welcoming Ray as he makes his way up to teach us this morning? Morning. So I figured this morning we'd talk just a little about Skookum, maybe give you an update um, on the latest there, and then we'd spend a little time in Acts chapter 1. How's that sound for a plan? Good plan? Okay. Um, So last time I was here on a Sunday morning, I think was three years ago, which in uh, Skookum years is more like 300 years. Um, uh, At that time, um, there was a a ragtag uh, group of us. Um, working on this thing that we were calling Skookum Kids, um, and we were really focused on getting our very first program open. That program we call Skookum House now. We've called it three or four things while we've sort of stumbled for a name, but Skookum House is what we call it. Um, And uh, at Skookum House, we care for children who are new to foster care. So children who are victims of abuse and neglect, and they're in an unsafe situation, they need to be removed from that situation, and they're headed into a loving foster home. And uh, uh, they spend about a week at Skookum House. We, we spend some time getting to know them, um, uh, give them just a, a delightful week, playing games, going to the park, having fun, eating donuts, you know, all the things kids like to do. Um, and that buys enough time for their social worker to locate a foster home that matches their needs really well. And that's what Skookum House does. And last time I was here, three years ago, we were like just on the cusp of opening Skookum House for the very first time and uh, bright-eyed. And, and I would, you know, I'd come and I'd, I'd say, talk about Skookum Kids, and I'd say, we do this thing, this, this thing in Skookum House is what I was talking about. Um, underneath all of that, we had um, some significantly larger ambition. Um, We were after and still are after nothing less than total and complete reform in foster care, but I was a little shy about saying so back then. Um, I've never done this. Um, I've never worked in foster care. I've never, I I didn't really have a lot of experience, and I was a little, I was a little, um, at the time, um, uh, maybe not sure if I should say out loud some of the things that I hoped God was up to. Um, uh, uh, But uh, just because I was shy about it doesn't mean God wasn't up to those things. Uh, And in those the the three years since then, God has done some incredible work uh, in and through Skookum Kids. So Skookum House is open and running and has been for the last three years. We care for about 200 children every year in that program. So about 200 kids come spend a week with us, and then because they're with us, we are able to learn a lot about them, which um, makes it possible for their social worker to make a good placement. We care for lots of John Doe's and Jane Doe's, kids who, pre-verbal, who they have uh, come into foster care in a wild and crazy set of circumstances such that their social worker doesn't even know their name and birthday. 
And so they spend a week with us. We watch very closely, learn as much about them as we can, make very good notes, and all of that informs the social worker locating a home they're going to they're gonna fit really well in. People talk about foster care and say, oh, foster care is broken. What, what, is it, what does it mean that foster care is broken? The way people answer that question, what, what, you know, what's broken about foster care, will tell you a little about um, the solution that they're, that they're hoping to, to deliver. And at Skookum, we believe that foster care is broken. There's a lot of complicated reasons why, but a lot of it boils down to the fact that it is too much work being done by too few people. So we believe that if we involve more people in the work of caring for foster kids, we get more members of our community, more of Greater Bellingham, more of the Capital C Global Church involved in this work, then a lot of the things that people say are broken about foster care will fix themselves. And so, because of that, Skookum House and a number of our other programs are staffed predominantly by volunteers. There are one, I say two, more accurately, there are one and a half staff members who work at Skookum House. There's, there's two people, but I give the, one of them more to do. So, and then there's a team of 100, and I'm not sure exactly how many volunteers who participate in that work of caring for those kids um, in their most vulnerable days, um, uh, and they do it day in, day out. In addition to that, um, we are working hard to um, uh, double the number of foster parents in Whatcom County by December 31st, 2020. 200 new foster homes by December 31st, 2020. That's the goal. We found that when, uh, you know, you involve more people in the work, especially in ways like at, at Skookum House and some of the other things we do, um, that many times the people who jump in and, and get involved, they get a taste for it. They catch the bug. And then, they, and then they say, you know, I, I want to do, I want to go all the way. I want to be a foster parent. And so when they say that, we are ready to help walk them through the licensing process. You're going to detect a theme here. When we wrote that goal, 200 by 2020, um, <laughs> I was a little embarrassed to tell people that goal because uh, we had, at the time, two uh, foster families working with Skookum. And so to say the goal was 200 in three years was a little like, really, should I say that out loud? Um, and uh, we started saying it out loud, uh, and I'm proud to tell you that today Skookum works with 30 foster homes, and um, that's in eight months. So I'm really proud of that, that progress. God's doing some really, really amazing things, and it's a fun, fun ride to be on. Um, so uh, if, you want, if, if, you know, if you are the kind of person who wants to participate in this work, wants to participate in foster care, but you're not sure where to start I would love to meet you. And so would Nicole. Um, Nicole Silva is a member of our staff. She and I will be standing at a table in the back after this. There's lots of great ministry tables, actually, back there. I'm seeing you should visit all of them um, because they're all my friends and do great work, too. So that's Skookum and the Skookum update. Um, let's spend a little time in Acts chapter 1, shall we? Acts chapter 1, and I'm going to read for you the first 11 verses. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he had said, you heard from me, 
For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is God's word. In 18th century France and Britain, emerging technology brought massive wealth to a small segment of the population. A fortunate few benefited from this wealth creation, uh, wealth created on a scale never before seen in the history of mankind, but the majority did not benefit. Uh, The majority was exploited. The laboring class was yoked to the newly created gears of industry in a deep rift of inequity formed between rich and poor. Does any of this sound familiar? It's been said that history doesn't repeat, but it often rhymes. In France, when that happened, anger and resentment about this inequity led to a bloody revolution in which more than 50,000 people were guillotined, shot, or died of disease. But in Britain, something different happened. Historians almost universally agree that in Britain, instead of a bloody revolution, the Great Awakening is what took place. The Great Awakening was led uh, in the early days by John and Charles Wesley. Um, it, It lasted for several decades and even spilled over into the United States a bit. And during the Great Awakening, huge swaths of the population of Britain became believers in Jesus and joined churches. And that led to a period of healing and social reform. Some of the byproducts of the Great Awakening included the end of the transatlantic slave trade and eventually the totally, total abolition of slavery in the entire British Empire, the first prohibitions of child labor, labor ever in human history, universal education, a massive increase in literacy, and an explosion in uh, uh, arts and literature. Now, why did that happen? Why did, in France, we get this bloody revolution where there are people being murdered in the streets, and in Britain, we get this flourishing? Well, because in Britain, huge swaths of both rich and poor were transformed when they encountered Jesus and experienced the world-changing essence of Christianity for the first time. 18th century Britain wasn't the first time this kind of gospel revolution has happened. It happened in 1st century Rome, happened again in 3rd century Rome, happened about 15 years ago in mainland China. It's happening uh, today on the continent of Africa, and it won't be the last. But thinking about the history of gospel revolutions and studying this passage in Acts, and, and as I think about all the things that God has done through Skookum Kids, things that I never expected, it raises some questions for me. First of all, 
I want to know what is the original essence of Christianity. If encountering this thing is the difference between the Great Awakening or revolution in the streets, I want to know what that thing is. And second, I want to know how is it made available to so many people so fast. And then third, I want to know what can we do to usher in a gospel revolution in western Washington in 2018. So, uh, let's start at the top. What, uh, what is the, the original essence of Christianity? You know, in large parts of the world, and for, for huge portions of history, the church has appeared very different from the infectious, world-changing, revolutionary force that it's intended to be. The shorthand way to explain that for some folks is to say that it is dead. The church is dead, you might have heard somebody say. Uh, it's not dynamic, it's not revolutionary or world-changing. You, you might even feel that way about uh, the church in general or Christianity in general. You might feel that the church, not referring to any particular local congregation here, but the capital C, church, institutional church, uh, you might feel that at worst, it is a power-hungry, controlling, uh, sometimes abusive institution. And at best, it's a warm, fuzzy, vaguely comforting place and thing. Maybe that's how you've experienced church before. Maybe you, you grew up in a church that was not the epicenter of a revolution, but existed somewhere on the spectrum of controlling to vaguely comforting. Maybe that's the experience of Christianity you've had. And I would submit that if that's the case, it's because you grew up around a Christianity that was largely misunderstood. Anywhere that Christianity has been understood, the original essence of Christianity, anywhere, it's been fully and correctly understood. It stokes social, moral, and economic revolution every single time. And I'd go so far as to say the majority of the population of Bellingham think they understand what Christianity is about, but they don't. They misunderstand it in a way that neutralizes its power. Someone who says Christianity is nice, it's sweet, it's good, useful even for many people... They might, they might say they like the message that God loves us, God died for us, so that God can forgive us, so we should forgive other people too and should be loving because of what Jesus did. Someone who says that is missing something. That can't be it, right? Because awareness of those facts does not alone lead to revolution. Think about the Christianity you've seen in your lifetime. Did most of it include consensus on those facts? and yet still fall short of revolution. Has the Christianity you've experienced in your lifetime, either, either in your own heart or, or in the lives of people you know, have you seen it what it did, do what it did in, the, in 18th century Britain? Have you seen millions of people swept up in a joy and peace they've never known? Have you seen Christianity totally remake society? Well, why not? That's what it does. The reason you haven't seen it do that is because there's more to it than that. Because Christianity has been largely misunderstood. So what is the original essence of Christianity? What is the missing ingredient? Well, it's right there in verses 1 and 2 uh, in the book of Acts. In, in my first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. There it is. First of all, Christianity is not a thing that you and I do. It's a thing that Jesus has already done. That's really important. 
Most people misunderstand Christianity because they make it a thing they need to do, at least in part. Sometimes people get it half right. You know, sometimes people say there's a thing that Jesus did, so now there's a thing or a set of things that I need to do. But that, then it becomes transactional. It becomes cold. It becomes lifeless. That's not correct. Christianity is not a thing that you do, not even in part. Christianity is not about being good. It is not about living a good life. It is about what Jesus has already done. And what has he done? Well, that's in here too. Verse 3, he suffered. He presented himself alive after his suffering. This book is a sequel. Do you know that? This book, the book of Acts, is a sequel. There's one that comes before it. It's called Luke. Um, and you can see there, he says, in my first book, Theophilus, I wrote about everything that word suffered. I wrote about everything that means. See, it's not enough to be a good person because the wrong that we do leaves behind a mark. You can try all you want to be a good person, but everyone falls short of their own standard for themselves. And, and then what? Some people believe that when you fall short, when you transgress, you just, you know, you feel bad and you say you're sorry. And God says, okay, well, you tried your best. You seem sincere. Would that work in a court of law, that approach? How would we, the voters, treat a commissioner who uh, sentenced someone guilty for a serious crime and then said, you seem genuinely sorry, so just don't do it again? We would not tolerate that. That would not be a just judge. You cannot run a society that way. It wouldn't work. There must be payment. There must be justice. And if that's the case of a human judge, how could we lower our standard for God? Sin must be paid for. God looks at us, at you, at me, and he says, I see your sins. I see how you've mistreated creation. I see how you've been unkind to people that you should love. I see your sin, and I hear that you're sorry about it, but there must be a payment. Sin must be paid for. And then, verse 3, Jesus suffered. He stands up to death and destruction. He faces down the worst terror. He says, you can't take my people. I won't let you. He put himself in harm's way. He put himself between us and the death that we deserved because of our sins. The ones we're sorry for and the ones we're defiant about. He faced the death that was ours by right and says, no, not these. They're mine. You can't take them. And that death, the one that had come for us, it fell upon him, and he suffered. He soaked up the full punishment that we deserved, you and I. It was spent, all of it, on him. And then, because he is from the beginning, because he's got the whole world in his hands, because there has never been and can never be a barrier that he couldn't overcome or a force that could overcome him, three days later... Three days after he faced down death and destruction, he rose from the dead. He came back to life in physical form. His body was dead, and then he brought it back to life. He didn't become a mystical Jedi spirit. He didn't continue on in an ethereal sense. No, the body of Jesus was reanimated, and his spirit moved back into it. Weird, right? 
But that's not even everything. Look how the author author explains it in verse 2. With all Jesus began to do and teach. You know, every other major religion has a dead founder. Buddha, he's done. Done teaching, he's done doing. Muhammad, he's done. Confucius, done. Those dudes, even their followers agree. Those dudes are done doing. Those dudes are done teaching. But not Jesus. Jesus is just getting started. And what he began while he was here on earth is continuing, and it is continuing in the same way that it began through his power. Because Christianity is not something that you and I do. It is something that Jesus has done and is continuing to do. Philippians 1.6 says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. The essence of Christianity is this. Jesus died in my place, in your place. Then he rose up from the grave, overcoming death, and then he ascended. He, he departed earth. He returned to his home in heaven and was seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, why did he do that? Have you ever wondered, like if, if Jesus is, still has work to do, right? If he's only just getting started, if there's still work to be done, if Jesus, there's still teaching to be done, he's still at work, right? If, if this isn't the day when God will complete the work that he started in each of our hearts and on this earth, if this isn't that day and there's still work to do, why did he leave Did he want to get away from us, or was he retiring to a warmer climate? Why why didn't he stay here on earth? Well, he had a really good reason. When Jesus was talking to his followers about this in John 16, he explained it. He said, I have to go up so that I can send the Holy Spirit to you. And in Matthew, he says that because of this, you will do even greater deeds than I. You know, the ascension is not the most loved part of the gospel narrative, but it's not any less important than the other components. The incarnation, the physical ministry of Jesus, the crucifixion, his death in our place, and his physical resurrection from the dead, all of those elements get more press, but the ascension, just as important. And the rest of the sto- if the rest of the story, the, those other elements are the dynamite, the source of power, then uh, the ascension is the detonator which unleashes that power and sends it out into the world. Jesus didn't ascend into heaven to get away. He did it so that he could be here in a new way. See, when Jesus was physically here on earth, he he did the work. He He did the ministry of teaching and healing, of comforting, of reversing the curse of sin and death. It was hard. It was costly. It was messy. And boy, he did the work. But he could only do it where his physical body was located. He, he was walking in our shoes. He took on a physical body. So he was physically doing the work and teaching, but he, was, he had limited himself to the location of his physical body. But now he's ascending. He's on the throne, and his power reverberates throughout the entire world. His work is being done all over the place. It's not limited to the location of his physical body. It is everywhere. Today he is at work everywhere in a way that he wasn't during his earthly ministry. The essence of Christianity is this. Jesus came here, took our place, stood between us and the death that we deserved, and now he works through us from heaven. 
So if when I set out to do ministry, I think, ah, another day, another service project, ho-hum. I have forgotten the ascension. You know, uh, if, if Jesus came in the back door, just kind of moseyed up the aisle, sat on the front row, and we all kind of looked around, like, and, and we're like, you wanna, do you want to? And, and he came up and said, hey, so we got some work to do out in Fairhaven today. We've got a list of projects. How stoked would we all be to get to work? Oh, that would be the most exciting day. Can you imagine the things we could do? Why is it any different, the fact that he's in his command center, directing work all over the globe? That's what the ascension means. It means that there's no difference in the magnitude of power available to the followers of God, as if he were sitting on the front row. I shouldn't expect ho-hum. I shouldn't expect business as usual. I shouldn't expect the status quo to be intractable. I should be eagerly anticipating Christ himself to work in and through me. I should be expecting revolution. I should be expecting a total reform of society. Lord, I believe. Forgive my unbelief. Do you expect revolution? You should. You should. So uh, if we should be expecting a total community reform, if we should be expecting revolution, how do we bring it here? How do we, how do we spark a gospel revolution in Western Washington that starts in 2018? Well, in short, truth becomes power. The truth that we've been talking about, the fact that Jesus' death was necessary because of my sin, because of the mess that I made, which I was utterly incapable of resolving myself. The fact that Jesus took the death that we deserved and overcame it. The fact that Jesus now works through us from heaven. The fact that Christianity is not something that I do, but something that Jesus did and is continuing to do through us. These things become power when they are believed. Truth becomes power when it is understood and believed. These truths become power mostly in the way that they change an individual's understanding of themselves. Particular, particularly, these truths, which collectively we call the gospel, when believed, affect an individual's understanding of themselves in three ways. It changes a person's identity. When believed, these supersede a person's sense of identity such that their personal allegiances are all downgraded. No longer is a person predominantly a Republican or a Democrat or black or white or man or woman. These categories that we use to define ourselves, these things melt away into insignificance. If the gospel is true, I'm a Christian first, and any other category I'm in comes second. And what effect does that have? Well, if I hold less tight to my preferred categories, it becomes much easier for me to connect with people who are in another category. It fosters a sense of unity and connection that isn't possible apart from the gospel. So ask yourself, does that sound like you? This is how the gospel, when it is understood and believed, affects a human person. Have you ever been affected in that way? Are you able to connect with people from all walks of life and empathize with them, identify with them, commune with them, because you don't have a strong allegiance with any rival group? Are you more Christian than you are a Republican? Are you more a Christian than you are a black person? Are you more a Christian than you are a woman? 
Does that sound like you? Because that's what it looks like when the truth of the gospel is understood and believed. Second is when the truth of the gospel is believed and becomes power in the heart of a person, uh, it leads to humility like you've never seen before. The true gospel and a complete understanding of it is destructive to the human ego. There's no room for self-congratulations or self-sufficiency in the heart of a person who's been saved by the work of Christ and is a recipient of his ongoing work from the throne of heaven. If I made a mess so big that it took an effort that extreme to reverse it, who am I to take credit for any of the good things that happen in my life because of the work of Christ? Truth becomes power as the message of the gospel makes a proud man or woman humble. And that opens the door to ministry that a proud person would never stoop to. Does that sound like you? No task beneath you, no responsibility too small, no person too insignificant. Does it sound like you? Because that's what it looks like when the truth of the gospel is understood and believed and becomes power and leads to revolution. And third, uh, truth becomes power when it leads to confidence. A complete understanding of true gospel creates an infectious confidence. If the God of the universe has chosen me and has forgiven me and now works through me, insecurities and self-doubt melt away. Who cares if I'm not smart enough, experienced enough, or my jaw isn't square enough? It isn't me who works anyway. It's the Lord's work in me. When gospel truth is fully understood and believed by the people of God, it becomes gospel power. And it leaves, leads inexorably, inevitably, unstoppably to revolution. And God has this thing where he loves to work through unexpected people. The Bible says he uses foolish things to confound the wise. Does that sound like you? Or are you hung up on your inhibitions, your self-doubt, your timidity? Do you hesitate to speak or serve or risk because you're not sure if you have what it takes? Friends, here's the message of the gospel. You don't have what it takes, and it's not going to matter. If the truth of the gospel became power in the hearts of everyone in this room, gospel revolution would come to this city. Um, the best... Uh, example of this, illustration of this I, I ever heard uh, was from Pastor Tim Keller, who pastors a church in, in New York. And he said, the way, the way God likes to start a revolution is he tells all his people, okay, we're going to have a revolution tomorrow. And over there, there's the enemy. That's where we got to go. They're beaten. I've got it handled. We outnumber them. We overpower them. But you're going to go first. So as soon as you step up, yell charge and start running, the victory will be won. It's going to happen tomorrow morning. Just go for it. I'm all set and ready. That's how God runs his revolution. And most of his people say, good plan. You know, what if you could like do it and I could see that it's been doing, you know, and then I'll be right there. I'll promise I'll be right there to take credit for it. That's, that's not how God runs his revolution. 
The power of God gets applied to the priorities of God. When the people of God see an issue that he, they know God cares about and says, that one. We're going to take that hill today. Let's go. And can I tell you, it's really fun. <laughs> having, having been a part of a couple of them in a few different parts of the country. It's really scary the day before and the day of and the day after to watch God work when everybody said it was impossible. There's nothing that much fun. God, thank you. You are a good God. There is so much darkness and pain and trouble and brokenness in this world. But you have such a good plan to overcome it. If I were you, I probably wouldn't have trusted us, but you've done that. If I were you, I probably wouldn't be working through us, but you're doing it. And so we're with you. We follow you. We believe. God, we're grateful for the sacrifice your son made for the wisdom, for the gifts that we could never possibly repay. And we're eager to play on your team, to be part of the revolution you have planned. Lord, we believe. Forgive our unbelief. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for connecting with Hillcrest Chapel. For more info on this and other sermons, go online to hillcrestchapel.com or visit us at 1400 Larrabee Ave in Bellingham, Washington any Sunday morning, 9 or 11 